One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The whole concept doesn't penetrate to a brain that isn't big enough to encompass it. And I think there will be an analogic thing with greater than human level intelligence, where there'll be all sorts of wonderful things that we would find beautiful if we could grasp them, but they're a little bit beyond our reach. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. All right, what do you think of this? If we could bioengineer our bodies to live forever, would we do it? And should we do it? Would we slash should we want to live indefinitely with no end in sight? What about swapping out the messiness and the awkwardness of sex with another sweaty, smelly and demanding human for, well, the ease of having sex with a robot? What if we never had to get pregnant? nor do the pain of childbirth and could instead use artificial external wombs. Would we and should we? And well, is all of this too late to to even be asking such questions? Transhumanists say it is. Too late, that is. The superhuman or post-human train has well and truly left the station. And in fact, we're only a decade or two from this altered, souped-up reality from becoming our reality. In today's episode, I chat to the Australian transhumanist scholar Elise Bowen, and I ask her all the bewildering transhumanist questions I've bottled up as I've begun to wrap my head around this massive topic. Like, well, for starters, why the hell were we not consulted on this before the train left the station? And has anyone stopped to ask, is this what humanity actually wants? And can we actually handle it morally? Is it eugenics wrapped up with a different bow? And also, who says the robots or these super intelligent beings made in our image won't just do what we do when we think we are superior, and that is trash the place and everyone around us? Haven't we learned anything from Frankenstein's monster? Elise is now a senior researcher at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute, which my recent guest, Will McCaskill, is also involved in, as you might recall. And she's recently published a book called Future Superhuman, Our Transhuman Lives in a Make or Break Century. I will preface, I am deeply perturbed by the enthusiasm for transhumanism happening in academic and tech circles. Some of the most exploitative men on the planet are driving it. So we're talking Elon Musk. He has a company that's about to start human trials of brain implantable computer chips for, and I cough, therapeutic purposes. Google's Larry Page and Amazon's Jeff Bezos are investing in labs dedicated to the reprogramming of human biology to defeat aging. 
while PayPal's Peter Thiel is making plans to have his body stored in liquid nitrogen, preserved until medical science has reached the stage where they can revive him, resurrect his body, you know, and augment it, enhance it. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Elisa's argument, however, is that we're hurtling towards a superhuman future already. We're already there. So we better board the train and ensure it doesn't crash us into our own extinction event. This is the wildest and most terrifying idea or reality I do think I've ever encountered. There is so much to take in. And so with this episode, I did allow things to sort of free range a little and head off in strange directions, which I think is just a reflection of transhumanism itself. Welcome, Elise. Thank you so much for joining us on Wild with a very wild concept or reality, transhumanism. Thanks, Sarah. It's really great to be here. Look, let's start by getting a picture of, well, how soon transhumanism will play out. And perhaps you could just kind of give us a picture of whether it's playing out already. Are we already in some kind of transhumanist time frame? Yeah, I think that's right. I refer to that in my book as that we're in a transhuman era. And I also describe it as a make or break century. So the idea is really with transhumanism or being in a transhuman state of evolution, that you're transitioning from this hunter-gatherer state where you have the same brain, same body, roughly speaking, as your hunter-gatherer ancestors from a few hundred thousand years ago. And, you know, you invent better tools and symbolic language and fire and all the rest of the things, but biologically, you're still the same entity with the same values, motivations, drives, and capacity to, uh, well, I suppose our capacity to transform the planet, wield resources has grown a lot with the aid of our tools. And the idea is that that brings us really to the precipice of a new phase of evolution on Earth, driven more by technology than biology. So we have all of these amazing technologies in our world today that are transforming how we communicate, how we date, how some of even our medical diagnoses will play out and be enacted. And this is kind of the beginning of the knee of a curve of very rapid change where our capacities stand to get almost unfathomably great relative to what they've been before. And the idea with being transhuman is that you're you're in the middle of this state on a trajectory towards something that could be so far removed from humanity as we know it that we would have to describe it as post-human or superhuman. So we're in that transitory phase. And of course, things like driverless cars are part of that, jobs being increasingly automated. And of course, with that comes a whole range of ethical and cultural ramifications, which we'll get to in a moment. But I know that you refer to a thing called an event horizon that you see occurring in about 20 years. Can you just clarify what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So technically, like an event horizon is a term borrowed from maths that physicists then co-opted to describe phenomena that happen inside a black hole. So once we get inside of a black hole, our ability, our model of that perceived reality then starts to break down. It becomes something, it's, it doesn't cease to exist, but our ability to describe it is no longer there. Our model doesn't function anymore. All right. Well, what I'm going to do is clarify. When you say that, you know, you feel there's an event horizon in 20 years, is that like when you feel that you just can't compute what's going to happen after that? Is that what you mean by your own event horizon in 20 years? Yeah. And I want to be really careful with that. So I, I'm not 
saying that this is a rupture in the fabric of human reality or that I definitely expect that in 20, 20 years the game's over and everything's radically different. I attribute a non-trivial chance to that, but we can come around to that in a moment. I think, yeah, for me, when you're writing books, when you're doing some level of future prognostication, for me, I really feel like I have a decent sense of the next decade, of the possibles and the probables. And obviously, I'm talking in general terms, not down to all of the minutiae. But after that, you do kind of hit this point where the knowledge that there will be so many knock-on ramifications of some of the changes in the next decade, just potentially so much economic growth from AI, so many transformative innovations that we can't see more than a few years in advance, if we can see them at all. I mean, how many people five years before the first iPhone thought, yeah, right, in five years, we'll have supercomputers in our pockets and we'll walk around ignoring the traffic while our eyes are glued to these these phones. Most people would have not only thought that preposterous, but said, well, I'll never do that. I would never, I don't even need a thing like that. Ridiculous. And I think there'll be so many things like that that skew our models that we'll have to update in real time. That's why I struggle to look more than about two decades ahead. And you're saying that's 20 years, give or take, away from 2022. I mean, you're 32 now. So let's say when you're in your middle ages, what kind of things are we talking about here? I mean, I know you've prefaced it by saying we can't actually envisage what's going to happen after an event horizon, but I'm sure you've got a bit of an idea on some of the technologies, some of the realities, some of the shifted realities that will be in place in 20 years' time. I definitely do have thoughts about the next couple of decades. And when I say it's an event horizon, I don't necessarily mean, right, we'll all be living in the cloud as superhuman uploads necessarily. I think, you know, radical changes could maybe take a couple of centuries and there's sort of a range of estimates. But in terms of forecasting in a world where we are having more and more AI and automation and through that very rapid economic growth, Whether or not that fully transforms humanity, it will transform human civilizations. And that's where your prognostications already start to break down. So the next 20 years, I mean, yeah, when I try and imagine my life, am I going to be living like my parents, sort of settled in a home with a partner and a couple of kids and a mortgage and have a stable job that I've carried through for the next two decades? I find the prospect unlikely. And I find the prospect that the kids born today are going to have a similar trajectory growing up to what I did. Also, a little bit hard to wrap my head around. I really do think that what we're most likely to see, stuff that we can be fairly confident about, we're going to have more driverless mass transit. That's going to sweep the world for sure. We will have more automation in general that does displace a lot of people from the workforce. And it's not necessarily that robots or AI do every facet of every job. It's often that they'll do half of the tasks that somebody in Job X used to do. And that means you don't need to employ as many humans to do those things. And yes, the upshot is you get to funnel those people into higher and higher level things and you don't have to do so much of the grunt work. But we do reach a point where the the barriers to entry for what is left are very high, cognitively high in particular. And so I expect a lot of disruption on that front and a lot of that disruption in these transition times to be really, really tough to negotiate because the knock-on consequences of people, it's not necessarily mass unemployment, but being reshuffled in ways that are really novel and really confusing is that then your identity starts to shift. 
then the maps that you've built for your life of where do I go all day? What's my purpose? And particularly how that funnels into how I support a family, how I build those pillars of a 20th century life script. That all gets a lot harder to navigate. And I do think especially for men in the dating and mating markets, when you're having more and more men displaced from low and middle skilled positions and not successfully upskilling reskilling, finding new jobs. The currency that they can then offer as husbands, partners, fathers plummets. And then that skews the sex ratios of the available men in the dating pool for the marriage market. That affects our marriage rates. That affects our fertility rates. And of course, then that affects our economy because there may not be enough human people born to fulfill a lot of the roles to pay into the tax system. And then we get into this feedback loop of sort of needing more robots, more automation to pay for all the things we need. Wow. I actually wasn't expecting you to head in that direction, Elise. It really does give a picture of the social and the moral and the cultural implications of everything that's already happening. And thank you for painting such a wonderful picture. I want to get back to this transhumanist stuff. I think one of the biggest things that concerns myself and most people when they enter into this realm is really AI and sort of the super intelligence that is being built. And I think the fear really is about the fact that it could run away. It could actually become so exponentially intelligent that we're not going to be able to control it anymore. And my understanding is that's called singularity. Have I got that right? Yes. Runaway superintelligence, superintelligence explosion. They're basically interchangeable terms with what is also called the technological singularity. And that's really the idea that AI at some point becomes human level. And I think that point is not particularly far off. Can you uh, give a little bit of a rough time frame? What do you think? What What are people saying is the time frame for where it hits you know par with sort of you know smartest adult humans? Uh, there's been a lot of surveys done over the last ten years, and timelines have contracted very recently in 2022. I'm not entirely sure whether they should have or whether people should have priced in some of the changes into their existing models. But um, I think a lot of estimates converge roughly between 2040 and 2065 for human level AI. So not a singularity. And these are median estimates. So the other important thing to say is that there's an enormous range and there's enormous disagreement within the AI community and robotics and computer science and neuroscience communities. That said, we don't really get estimates that blow out much past 2100. So it's it's not terribly it's far in our off. lifetime. I mean, it's really... So would, would AI be roughly at the level of, I don't know, a five-year-old <laughs> at the moment or a toddler? I mean, is it? do you speak about it in that language? It has been spoken. I think Alan Turing back in 1950 was sort of talking about, well, why can't we use, why can't we sort of train these language models and these algorithms in the same way that we sort of think about a child's mind of, you know, I think she was probably speaking to something like reinforcement learning there of you give it praise when it does the right thing and it learns over time, this good, this bad, etc. cetera. Uh, and it grows into the adult brain over time. Those analogies do get used. Um, I don't, they're not particularly precise. And I don't think I have the in-depth knowledge of building AI systems to know where it's at in terms of a human brain or even necessarily if that's the right analogy. Also, I think what is often used is more sort of like mouse brain, cockroach brain, and sort of we're going this sort of up the tree of life. Yes, if you will. But that's really interesting. So sort of 
2040, somewhere between 2040 and 2065, for most of us listening, will be alive still. Look, again, that's that's a median estimate. There's, you know, there's a 10% chance for a lot of researchers will say there's a 10% chance in the next 10 years. That's very non-trivial. So big range and a, a, a lot of dates to potentially uh, have in our minds as possibilities. This century is very much on the cards. So that is not the singularity. Tell us what the singularity is then. Yes. So this this idea is, you know, you've got a human level artificial intelligence that can do lots of tasks or even all tasks as well as a human and can switch between those tasks very much what we would equate with general intelligence. And the great thing about machines or the terrifying thing about machines is that they don't need to eat or sleep. They can replicate themselves very quickly in silicon. We don't need to spend 20 years growing a new AI. They don't Um, need to go to school. No, exactly. (laughs) Exactly right. And so you ratchet up very quickly the pace of collective intelligence in the global system. And that means you get to innovate faster. You can do more, you can accelerate drug discovery. You can design products and systems quickly. You can figure out new materials and material science and manufacture things in different ways. The world gets richer a lot quicker, but a lot of things change in very disruptive ways very quickly. And one of the things that changes is that you would expect with more intelligence in the system that you can use the machines to design better software and better computing hardware and find new efficiencies in computing that allow us to design even smarter AIs at a faster and faster rate. So you get human-level AI, build slightly better than human, and so on and so on until you get to this very radically superhuman system or cluster of systems that are sort of interpenetrating. And yeah, suddenly you've gone from human-level systems to something that is hundreds, thousands, millions of times smarter than you or I, and that's ratcheting up really, really fast. So that's how you get your event horizon where you're kind of blown away by the pace of change, all the models break down, human minds can't really wrap our heads around what comes next. Yeah. I I mean, it's exponential. We go from creating a a comparable chess partner to (laughs) a super species. Now, I have got a lot of questions for you on that specific point, but I first want to ask whether this excites you, and if so, what bits of this whole picture excites you? I would be lying if I said it didn't excite me, and I almost think you're mad if it doesn't, purely from an intellectual standpoint. This is such a wild and fascinating prospect, so utterly different and so utterly huge relative to anything that has happened in human history to date. Just, I mean, if you're into science fiction, what a story, right? It's it's kind of mind-blowing. It does excite me, but I will say it is the thing that terrifies me most in the world. And the people that are looking on at some of these prognostications with fear or ire or sort of desperately wanting it to go away, wanting to shut it down, I am so on board with that reaction too, because this could be, you know, it's, it's cliched and it's often said this very much could be the best or the worst thing that ever happens to our species, or it could be both in very quick succession. And, you know, the capacity obviously to unlock tools to ameliorate suffering on the grandest scale we've ever seen, to create tailor-made drugs to individuals so that we can finally cure depression, so that young people are no longer dying by suicide, so that we can tailor cancer drugs to knock out the biggest killers in our world, so that we can 
I think the most exciting thing here really is unraveling the mysteries of cognition and consciousness. Not because we want to reduce everything beautiful in our world to something algorithmic, but so that we can finally instantiate the dreams of fiction, poetry, literature, and great art of the marriage of true minds so that we can really understand each other's souls, so that we can get past petty hatreds and misunderstandings, so that we can really actually instantiate the most elevated dreams of the best parts of our humanity. I think there's so much to be humbled by that and the awe-inspiring possibility of that is truly, truly beautiful. To that point about the fact that the feeling that you have that it could actually expand the human experience such that we can access these quandaries and age-old questions surrounding consciousness and love and connection and, and so on. It intrigues me. I've got to ask, do you feel that it is going to be the sort of the upgrading via the technology? So the actual AI robots, if you like, that are going to be able to achieve that because of their sophisticated cognitive abilities? Or is it because we're going to be freed up from doing menial tasks that consciousness is going to be able to sort of steer itself to, to more moral pursuits and we'll be able to evolve in that way? Because that's an argument that Will McCaskill makes. You know, yeah. if we're not doing these tedious tasks, then potentially we could be putting our our brain cells to better use, to pursuing conscious and moral goals. Yeah, I really enjoyed your interview with Will. And I think I I subscribe to both of those positions, but I think they operate on different scales of the timeline. I don't think they really uh, overlap in this sort of linear narrative. So the idea of being freed up from tasks, that's what I'm sort of thinking of in the next 10, 20 years. I think a lot of the automation will give us a lot more freedom in our daily lives as humans, embodied humans, biological humans, just like you and I today, to spend more time thinking about what really matters because we've been freed from some of the the grunt work that sort of choose into so much of our days and times. And also there's a lot to be said, you know, there's a lot of research on poverty and the way that that contracts your circles of empathy and your ability for delayed gratification because you're in this high cortisol state of, you know, just getting through the day and in survival mode. And when you're freed from survival mode, when you feel like there are fewer zero-sum games in your world, that your success doesn't have to be somebody else's failure or vice versa, that kind of abundance does expand our capacity for empathy. What about the AI intelligence itself, the actual robots? Do you think they're going to be contributing to this consciousness-raising existence? Now, that is one of, like, it's a hell of a question. It's one of my favorite questions because the fact is we don't know and it could go either way. So that the potential there is obviously you would expect something with orders of magnitude more intelligence than a human to be able to have an expanded capacity for everything that is human and then have capacities beyond that that we can't really imagine. And it's it's really crude and ham-fisted, but I guess if you can think of different emotions, different flavors of sensation, different even ratcheted up higher levels of bliss and pleasure and joy and all of those things, I think just these words are feeble compared to what might be possible there and they won't really describe what it is that they're experiencing, but there will be something... In the same way that I suppose, you know, I talk about this in my book, if we were to anthropomorphize a cat 
and try to describe to Felix the cat, you know, what it's like to listen to a Beethoven sonata or to play a Kanye West tune and be like, you would love this thing called music. I tell you, this concept is amazing. And the cat's like, sounds, I hear sounds all the time. You know, I've got better hearing than you do. They're kind of annoying. Sounds are mostly a trigger of like, is something coming to kill me? The whole concept doesn't penetrate to a brain that isn't big enough to encompass it. And I think there will be an analogic thing with greater than human level intelligence, where there'll be all sorts of wonderful things that we would find beautiful if we could grasp them, but they're a little bit beyond our reach. Yes, my brain and also my intuition and my general sense of my being as a human is very, very sceptical about that sort of that secondary way that we might reach better consciousness, higher consciousness, more morally good consciousness, because I just don't know that the mysteries of all the intricacies, that you know, the granular stuff, the stuff that no psychiatrist or psychologist or spiritualist or anybody's ever been able to put their finger on, you know, and it's, you know, a combination of gut instinct and intuition and all kinds of mysteries. But I like the idea that it's possible and that, of course, we may not even know what's possible. So you touched on the automation of jobs and absolutely it could free us up. But I've got two questions. Could I briefly come back to what you just said? Yes, which please, is go that ahead. I share a lot of that skepticism too. So I think that's one side of the one side of the coin. The other possibility is that we build, even though they're super intelligent, the equivalent of autistic robots who have a blunted capacity for emotion, that they are utility maximizing machines of some some ilk, that what they're doing might mean a heck of a lot to them, but it would be recognizably meaningless or repugnant to us. You know, there's there's a range of scenarios that we wouldn't vibe with, some of them genuinely bad. I mean, they could go around destroying ecosystems we value, harvesting the atoms because they want to use them for something else. So the idea that it's like we should all be excited about a superhuman future because the AIs will definitely be awesome and will love them. I definitely don't subscribe to that. I think it's it's such an open question as to where beyond the event horizon, how it all plays out. The reason I think to embrace the discussion and embrace the possibility is because more or less it's coming whether we like it or not. It's kind of a Hail Mary for the species once, you know, we're not going to dial back innovating AI. We're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. It's as much as people might wish it, it's not possible because the economic incentives are too great and humans are wired to pursue those incentives. No matter how much we talk a good game about, let's just have a society-wide conversation. That's not what's happening. Money talks and the R&D is going to ratchet up and up and up no matter what we say or do. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to just backtrack back to this idea of the automation of work. There's two things I just want to bring up there, and perhaps I'll just plant them because I, I get the sense that, yes, they're unanswerable at this stage, but they're moral quandaries, which I think anyone listening might already be thinking about. First of all, what does it do to human self-esteem when we take jobs away from people? We already see this problem playing out. And sure, it's the menial tasks, but there are some people who really love their menial tasks. It gives them a sense of purpose. It gets them up in the morning, which leads to my second concern around all of this. And that is, we are really shit with spare time. What mm-hmm. makes us think that when all of a sudden we don't have to go to work and, I don't know, turn on our Zoom and all of that kind of thing, that we're going to turn to the spiritual upgrading of our consciousness? I mean, we don't do it now when we have a weekend. I mean, we go shopping, we we flitter away our time because we're deeply uncomfortable when we don't have a structured sense of purpose. So in terms of the transition, that concerns me. I'd love to think that everybody went and meditated and tried to solve moral problems, you know, with all this spare time. You then also talk about this idea that maybe there'll be these very basic robots. Who knows what they could do? Like, it's a bit like Frankenstein's monster. I was talking to my father just before I, you know, logged on to talk to you. I was telling him about this interview and he said, oh, are these scientists programming the robots with some kind of algorithm that says do not kill humans or do not destroy the planet. And I suppose that's a question I think many of us have. We're predicating all of this on, you know, this sort of idea that we might have some control. Is there any work being done at, I guess, a moral level by these scientists, by these tech enthusiasts to ensure that some of the things that really matter to us as humans will be protected? Or is the horse really bolted? Well, so two huge lines of inquiry there. I will say- Which one you want to speak to? (laughs) Yes. Um, So I'll start with the first one, which is, that is one of the things that keeps me up at night. That is something that I have spoken to quite a lot in the book. Addressing, I suppose, some of the more naive hand-waving around automation and universal basic incomes. Uh, because I agree with you. I think the sudden rug pull from millions or even hundreds of millions of people of a life script that has been so entrenched that we have been raised to believe in that I think has deeper biological roots, you know, not that we were biologically evolved to work in factories or anything like that, um, but some level of scripted behavior where we fit into a tribe and have a pro-social purpose, very much so. Um, And you're absolutely right. I think we're already seeing harbingers of that disaffection and that confusion and that decline of self-esteem and yeah, that with hunger. With men in particular. Well, I, would, I wouldn't say just men. First. Well, you know, so far it has been in terms of the automation piece, um, it has been a lot of, you know, blue-collar men that have been losing their jobs in this transition and I think are suffering. But anyway, yes, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's going to be broad and across the scale very soon from from what I gather. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think there is a naive take that sort of says, yeah, we'll just throw money at people. There'll be a basic income, four-day work week, we'll work less. It'll all be fantastic. And I think there's something valid in that's the end goal that you're shooting for, maybe, or at least a temporary end goal. 
transitional end goal. But the transition times, we haven't processed the fact that our institutions lag so much further behind the technology, our expectations do, our psychological wiring does. Political and leadership is, is in the absolutely. dark ages. Um, Indeed. Mm. And they do not know how to react to questions about, well, what is my son going to do when he grows up? It's all hand-waving, hand-waving. Oh, we created 5,000 new jobs this year, etc. And no sense of what is the life arc of this person going to look like? What is their future earning potential going to look like? And a big problem, I think, is that we have lost a lot of the institutions of old, one of which was various manifestations of quote unquote, the church that drew people together in localized communities that gave us a sense of connection to people around us, a sense of pro-social reciprocal altruism. You, you know, when a member of your flock falls on hard times, the community is there, etc. And that doesn't for a minute discount the many repugnant things that have happened in the name of religion or the ways those communities have. I refer to it as almost they were the umpires on the footy field of life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like as yeah. we evolved and all these things happened and world wars and famines and kind of new technologies in their very rudimentary forms, you know, 200 years ago, they provided discussion, a space for it all to be wrestled out in a moral way. So how is it being done today? I totally agree with you. We suffer as it is without these kind of institutions that provide moral guardrails. So given that's the case and we've got this runaway technology, what is there anyone providing checks and balances on this. And I know that in the past, I've, I think I've read, I think you say it in your book, that you would actually prefer sort of these PhD, you know, educated scientists to be making these kinds of decisions, what are, you know, sort of social cultural decisions as we go forward rather than governments. And my argument would be, I don't think either are, are equipped. My base question is, is there anyone, is there anything that is actually ensuring that these moral questions that we're raising in here are being factored in. Like, let's get the answer back to my dad. Is somebody kind of plugging in an algorithm saying, do not kill humans, do not rape and pillage the planet? Short answer, no. Um, But I I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I do have to push back a little bit. Do Do I argue that I would really like a bunch of people with PhDs running the world? Good Lord, no. (laughs) I've met far too many people with PhDs, I'm afraid. I think that the more nuanced argument is that all else being equal, I would rather people who are guiding some of the biggest changes in our world, having some of the biggest influences on what happens next, to at least have a strong understanding of the technologies that are shaping our future. You know, we like to think that human actors, you know, our stories revolve around kings and peasants and, you know, the the hero's journey, the the evil antagonist. It's always, you know, what's being made to happen through human action or inaction. And I think, you know, as someone who studied macro history, who looks about trends influenced by geology and microbes and bacteria and all sorts of things, we're not as in control as we ever like to imagine. And we're subject to so many larger forces, even within our own realm of decision making. So the idea that I also wouldn't say I don't think governments should be involved. I think they absolutely should be involved. I, w- I wish we had more people within government 
who were less motivated by personal status and power. But I think it's pretty unrealistic because, I mean, I think people that really want to think deeply about complex problems don't tend to become politicians, unfortunately. But that said, (laughs) that said, you know, I think our democratic systems are incredibly important and that the idea that we would have more people with a higher level of understanding talking to politicians, advising governments, and certainly we need forces keeping technologists and, you know, it's not necessarily people with PhDs, but people who run the biggest companies in the world that are influencing our behavior and feeding us (laughs) the next YouTube video. Definitely, we need government and big tech to be in it together. We need more than that. And that's the problem. I mean, we have people like Elon Musk and a bunch of just people whose qualifications are that they're mega wealthy and can afford to do this. They're allowed to run away with some of this technology unchecked. And it's a massive concern. And I've got to confess, Elise, like I've been very involved in the climate crisis and in terms of drumming up concern among the general population and trying to get everybody like, hey, guys, you need to know about this and and act on it and speak to your government MP and so on. But what we're seeing here, I've got to say, and I put AI on a shelf in my brain where I put the rules of cricket and how to use PowerPoint, like I can't cope in this lifetime. But I've had to pull it down off that shelf recently and go, Oh my goodness, this is next level. And the fact that this is all happening at an exponential rate, cruising towards various event horizons and the singularity, none of us have been consulted on it. None of us are engaging in a moral discussion around it. And it is absolutely frightening. I know that what is the answer to that? I don't know, but I just want to flag a couple of other moral ideas or moral quandaries around this I want people to think about that you might have a take on or you might want to add to it. We're in a transition stage, as you say, and as we're in this transition stage, of course, we're going to be in a position where only the rich and powerful have access to some of these great beneficial technologies. And I'm reminded of the book, Clara and the Sun. I don't know if you've read it um, by Kazuo Ishiguro. It depicts a world where some people, and you don't quite know why, but I think some people can afford to have this upgraded sort of brain put into their children and some can't. And some can have access to these robots who become friends. So the divide between the have and have nots is a massive issue here. The other thing at a sort of very mundane level is as we enhance competition becomes redundant. I was thinking about this, like chess competitions and Olympics become redundant because if you've got these superhumans that can perform both physically and cognitively better than us, then what's the point of having these competitions that have defined, I think, the human experience in many ways for several hundred thousand years? I mean, we could go on on and on, but maybe I should ask you, what of all the moral quandaries concerns you? I guess, particularly quandaries that are not being discussed or factored into all of this. Yeah, I, I suppose I have a twofold answer to to the moral quandaries that I worry most about. The first prong is that I I share all of your worries about the people in the present who both feel like and in some sense are being steamrolled by the future. I think there will be humanitarian tragedies that unfold as a result of this. To contextualize it a little bit, there has been no point in human history at which we have not had mass humanitarian tragedies for some reason or another. And I do draw the analogy in my book with, in some ways, we are a little bit like the children of the Industrial Revolution, working in mines, coughing up soot, 
dying of tuberculosis, you know, the city's shrouded in smog, you can't get a breath of fresh air into your lungs. Like the Industrial Revolution in many parts of the world while it was happening was horrific. And lots of lots of awful things happened and it would have felt living through it like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? This is terrible. And yet, and you know, there's still in the aftermath of it, many people are suffering as a result of industrialization in many ways. Yet the net benefits to humanity in terms of average global life expectancies, declining child mortality, less people than ever living in extreme poverty, more and more people than ever living in democratic countries, most of the world being literate, having access to basic hygiene and sanitation. What those transitions often unlock are immense humanitarian gains, but they do come at a cost. And I think it is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our heads around is the idea that we might be the collateral damage of history. Some of us as individuals, but in a sense, all of us as a collective. There is not a person alive today who is not going to feel some kind of shock and pang as a result of a big technological transition. We're all feeling it and we're all in some sense struggling with it. But I think the temptation as humans then is to instantly rail at the thing that's making me feel bad or the thing that's taking things away. And we're very good at loss aversion as humans. We're very wired that way. We can only really think about these transitions in terms of an unmitigated loss. The way you just described that, you're sort of thinking about all the things that won't be here that you know and love. And we're wired to, I'm thinking about that too. And it scares the crap out of me. But we would be remiss not to use history as the benchmark to think, well, could there be gains that are barely fathomable to us too, that for our ancestors, for our children's children, and for the millions of or trillions even of generations of future people. And that's the other side of the moral question for me, the moral part that I worry most about. If we prioritize ourselves as frightened people in a transition time too much, we may actually be denying trillions of future people a bright and sustainable future. Because I do believe that for all its attendant risks, AI and other technologies will be the key to solving the climate crisis. They will be the key to ensuring that we don't go down in history as the smartest and best thing that ever lived on this planet because we we nuked ourselves in the 22nd century or whenever it is. Consumed ourselves um, in our Petri dish. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful aspect of your argument and it has got me thinking. The flip side of all of this is that we probably can only solve the complexity of the hyper objects that, of course, we've created the climate crisis, nuclear threat, all kinds of things, overpopulation, whatever you want to point your finger at. We don't have the capacity to solve them. I think we're aware of that now. And so, yes, we may need some help. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on that you've just referred to. You know, this, this idea of more people are educated, you know, poverty levels have um, decreased. You know, that's the Steven Pinker argument and Bill Gates argument that gets rolled out in these sort of situations on a regular basis. But really what those statistics don't point to is a loss of human flourishing. And it's the stuff that the statistics can't account for. So I always get concerned about that. But also, even if we talk about the potentiality of these technologies to solve the crises that are on our plate, we're trying to fix the problem with the same consciousness that caused the problem in the first place. And there's a whole heap of maybes. And my issue is that we haven't paused, pressed pause 
you know, the, the priests and the church leaders haven't said, hey, come on, guys, let's sit around and actually talk about this first, the moral implications. We haven't had that discussion. And every time we fail to have those discussions and just go, you know, um, soldiering ahead, bludgeoning our way forward with the excitement of sort of new, new and bigger, bigger and better, it ends in disaster for human flourishing. And so I suppose that's my real concern. We can talk about how potentially it could do great stuff, but the problem is, is we're not ensuring the best likelihood of that. Yes. Well, there is a lot there. The loss of human flourishing is a really interesting one because on some level, I feel that. I feel that it's almost part of, at least in the Western industrial rich countries, quite ironically, part of the zeitgeist of the time, this sense of something is missing. I'm searching for a deeper meaning, a deeper sense of community, a deeper sense of connectedness, and I'm not finding it in this world. But I have to push back there and say that in so many ways, that is a byproduct of how wealthy we already are. And I know you're not equating wealth with happiness and nor am I, but the fact that the wealth has unlocked a point in human history where so many of us actually have the time to even have that thought. And to even feel the loss of something that most of our ancestors never had. Honestly, if we are talking about the loss of human flourishing, I truly question whether a world where I would have died in childbirth by now, probably have been raped, married to somebody that I, that was brutish and awful, had my husband die in a war, uh, buried many children. <laughs> I question whether that was ever the definition of human flourishing. And I'm deeply skeptical that a romantic hearkening back to the past really does represent that. But that's not to say I don't hear you about the thing that's missing. I think it is missing. And I think there still is a disconnection from nature that is novel, that is occurring in our very industrialized urban environments. But again, we've never had better tools. It feels counterintuitive to lean into the technology more, but we have never had better tools to understand what's wrong and to throw resources at it. And then you, you get to the problem of, you know, the scientific planners. Well, we're just barnstorming ahead, as you say. So it feels like we just keep pushing ahead, pushing ahead. And I think that's right. But I think we get the culprit wrong there. We kind of want to assume that that's because there are these baddies in charge. And if they just stop doing the really forceful things and not consulting everybody else, we could sort of have a great discussion and it'll be fine. And there is something, you know, C.S. Lewis warned about this in about the 1940s, I think, where he, he talked about the scientific planners of the world and said, you know, man's conquest of nature really in the end is always some version of nature's conquest of man. And I think he was, he was dead right about that. I love it. But... The villain, I think in our heads, we still feel disgruntled at like the humans aren't doing it good enough. And my rejoinder to that is exactly human nature itself is the problem. Human nature is part of the feedback loop of why we keep falling into the same traps, making the same short-termist, self-interested decisions, not acting in a timely fashion on climate change, not getting our act together on the biggest problems of the day. And as long as we have these eight brains, it doesn't matter how much love or desire we have for a better world in our hearts, we will not get down to the nitty gritty of solving the problem. And for that, we need something else. Gosh, you make some very challenging points. And I love this dance that we've been having. You know, I will just make one rejoinder to that. And that is we're making these machines in our own image. And that's probably where I also have an issue. Like, I don't know that they're going to be any more altruistic and less self-interested. 
than humans currently are. We do have to wind this conversation up, unfortunately, and I, I would love to be sitting in a pub with you right now, wrestling this out in all kinds of ways. I do know that you've written that you see a future for humanity, but not necessarily for human beings as we know humans to exist today. And you were also asked recently for your best case scenario by the end of the century. And you said, sorry to quote you back at you, but I'm intrigued by this comment. My honest answer is that I, that I think the best case scenario is that by the end of the century, humans are done, but humanity is not done. So intelligence goes on. I think you've kind of given us a little bit of an idea of what you mean by that. I've got to ask, are you okay with this idea of humans being done, but humanity going on? I'll preface by saying humans really annoy and disappoint me, but I adore humanity. So I do get the distinction that you're making there, but I'd love to wrap things up by getting a feel for whether you're okay with all of this. Yeah. I mean, I also adore humanity. I am a I'm a humanities major background who studied English literature because I wanted to study what it was to be human. I have immersed myself in poetry from the last 400 years of plays of great novels and have been obsessed with communing with this thing, this bigger thing that I am a part of in order, because I think the finitude of life has always struck me very profoundly. And it's like, you're here for such a brief moment in the sun, who would not want to know, will never know in an objective sense what it means, but have the insight into humanity enough to live well, to live a meaningful, examined, connected life. That is always the thing that has excited me most about being alive. The reason you will hear an answer like that, and I have to contextualize that was from an interview with The Guardian in which it is a, you know, when you're speaking to journalists, it's off the cuff. They will soundbite you, they will bookend you, and they'll get the little, you know, three-second slogan, three-word three, three word slogan or whatever it is. I do stand absolutely by what I said, but it is a very easy statement to take extremely out of context. And which and is I why think- I wanted to give you this opportunity to sort of flesh it out because it didn't seem to sit completely with what you're saying, with your vision well, for all of this. Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you hear a phrase like humanity will be done, I think you've a lot of people well, have humans shut down. Humans will be done. Humans will be yeah. done. Humanity will continue. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I, I talk about this and it's it's truly a very hard thing to talk about. You know, you, you're very aware that this is something people do not want to hear and are deeply, deeply uncomfortable considering. I think the reason it's so important to talk about and the reason I make that at the forefront of what I do is because when you really survey the terrain of that our species is on in the 21st century, the big X risks of nuclear weapons, pathogens and pandemics artificial intelligence, potentially nanotechnology in the future, and climate change. We are juggling more powerful technologies and more risks than we know how to handle. And, you know, I think you touched on this a little bit with your interview with Will. Like you stretch the timeline out long enough and the probability that one of those things takes us out starts to, you, eventually it hits 100. And, you know, Will was sort of saying one in six probability of an existential risk. Mm. Yeah. So that's Toby's estimate from the precipice. And, you know, Martin Rees has called it at 50-50 that humanity will survive the current century. So we can sort of stick our fingers in our ears all we like and go, la, la, la. You know, the the narrative version, the, the hero's journey is, well, 
humanity's heart prevails and we will go on because we will just rally and our goodness will triumph over the bad. And at this juncture, in an age with these technologies and these risk categories sitting on our plate and witnessing how badly we bungled the COVID pandemic that could have been a global catastrophic risk were it a more serious pathogen. Good Lord, it could not be more abundantly clear that we are not going to make it through unless something changes. And so that leaves us with, we either have a trajectory where we use more intelligence to solve complex problems that we are currently bungling, or one of those problems takes us out. And there isn't a future, there truly isn't a future, where for thousands more years, we just get to freeze technology at 21st century levels. We just get to go, right, we like the internet, we like our smartphones, no more of this AI, please, that's a bit too much. We're kind of happy with where things are, and we, we, we rather like the current levels of global wealth, they're good. Maybe if we could have a bit more to solve poverty, that would be nice, but not any of the things that come with further economic growth not any of the, the rapid innovations, we don't get to have our cake and eat it too. And people don't want to hear that. But the reason it's an AI, like that internalizing an AI or bust scenario or post-humanity or bust scenario is important is because if we actually fixate on the idealist narratives of, couldn't we just go back to the earth? Couldn't we dial back all this technology? The answer is no. It cannot and will not happen. And so we can talk about that till we're blue in the face or till the nukes start raining down on, on wherever they rain down on, or till the bioengineered pathogen escapes the lab. We can talk about that, but they're the wrong conversations, even if they console us and even if they make us feel good. I think that's absolutely right. I think that the right conversation is the kind of conversation we're having here where we're actually wrestling with all of this. And I suppose the next part of all of this is like, if we're concerned about it, if we want to be engaged in the moral questions that it all raises, then we need to be getting on board now. We need to be really thinking it out and thinking about what we want to, how we want to be engaged in the debate. And I don't even know where those debates are happening and what we can do with climate. It was contact your MP, but I'm I'm not entirely sure. And I don't know that there is a forum yet. We certainly need to be talking about it and understanding it. And uh, Elise, I've got to tell you this, it's kind of what my next project is. It's why I'm talking to people like you and I'm traveling around just trying to get a, a feel for these issues. I've got to say, I'm very, very grateful for the way that you write about it and talk about it. It makes a lot of sense. It's scarily pragmatic, but I get why you're taking on that mantle. So big stuff on your shoulders there. And thank you so much for this conversation. It went in directions I wasn't expecting, but that's what I loved most about it. You have a wonderful Thanks so day. much, Sarah. Right. So that chat definitely meandered into a lot of moral quagmires, but I try not to worry too much when conversations do that on this podcast, because it generally reflects the subject matter itself. As Elise and others in this space do often point out, the topic is literally too vast and complex for us. We can't hold all the information. We can't corral it into a linear, logical structure with a beginning and an end. I deeply respect Elise for her stance in all of this. You know, I agree with her. We're already in this mess and maybe it's a moot point to be railing against it. And instead, perhaps we should be putting our energy into using the technology to solve the mess that we went ahead and made, but then realized it's too big for us to fix. It 
really is a horrible quality of human nature. We're great at smashing things up and building these big sort of monstrous things, forging ahead with greedy gusto and not thinking about the impact of what we're doing, the implications and including the moral implications. And I guess this is my core point, which I sort of meander around. Aren't we going to learn from what got us into all of this? Isn't that the point of evolution? But instead, we are insisting on fixing the problem with the same consciousness that caused it in the first place, which I believe Einstein said is the definition of madness. Right now, I think as a first sensible step, there should be a moratorium on all developments until everyone has gone to their room and had a good hard think about where all of this is going to head. I mean, I'm talking idealistically here, of course. Already, we are bringing biases and limitations to this transhumanist movement. The other day, I was reading about these sex bots and the scientists were saying that, you know, these sexual partners, the ones that were built for women, are woefully behind those that have been built for men. I mean, we're just doing the same thing over and over again. If this conversation, as it progresses at exponential speed, can do anything, It is to get us thinking about this idea of human flourishing. What makes a life meaningful? Can human abilities be reduced to just mere data that can then be replicated in a a robot? Or is there more to what makes us able to expand, you know, especially into higher levels of spiritual and moral consciousness? I talk about it in my recent podcast with the British philosopher A.C. Grayling. You know, it's called The Hard Problem of Consciousness. And a lot of philosophers are saying perhaps the hard problem of consciousness is not meant to be solved. Perhaps the mystery is what is important to us. Anyway, as I say, I don't have the path forward through this intellectually or spiritually or philosophically. I'm just having the conversation for now. I'm flagging this a bit at the moment. Please do follow this podcast. As I say, I don't have an idea of the path forward through this intellectually, philosophically, or spiritually, and, and I don't know that there is anyone out there who, who does. I think the most important thing we can do just now is have the conversation to keep talking about it and learning about it. Okay, now look, I'm flagging this a little bit at the moment. I'd really love everyone here to follow this podcast. And on Spotify and Apple, it involves just hitting the follow button. I think it's really obvious on the homepage and you will get the latest episodes in your feed each Wednesday morning if you do that. Look, I love that all of you are joining me here in this wild space. It's ever evolving and I really do encourage all of you to sort of send me a note on Instagram or on my Substack kind of comment section with names that you would really like to see me interview here. Until next time, please do stay wild. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.